London's Heathrow Airport is one of the busiest airports in the world. On any one day, 1,200 aircraft take off, 181,000 passengers on any one day are herded through the terminal. That's two passengers either departing or arriving every second of every minute of every hour of every day. If you stacked all the passports just flat on top of each other, of all the people who travel through Heathrow in any one year, if you stack all their passports on top of each other, you'll make a pile over 200 times higher than the uh, Empire State Building. It's a busy airport. And that's just the passengers. Over twice the entire population of Dubbo turn up at Heathrow every day for work. I have a mate who the first time he ever went through Heathrow had a full-blown panic attack. He'd never had one before, but when he stepped off the plane in the middle of this jungle of noise and confusion and flashing signs and people everywhere and almost this constant roar of aeroplanes taking off, my, my mate, he just froze. said he was like an animal caught in the headlights of a car. It was just way too much for him. Now, of course, if you think about Heathrow Airport, uh, maybe it's not quite as chaotic as my friend thought. It just depends on your perspective, doesn't it? Because down in the terminal, yes, it's all hustle and bustle. Yes, it's sort of what on earth is going on here? Where do I go? What do I do? But up in the control tower, that's a different view altogether. Because the bigger picture of the airport is that, in fact, things are planned. Things are orchestrated. And everything is working together to fit so that aeroplanes do take off virtually every second without hitting one another. And thousands upon thousands of passengers do reach their destinations each and every day. The view from the control tower, it's quite different from the view in the terminal. Now, I'm telling you all this this morning because that's pretty much captures the stage of revelation that we have reached this morning. Because, you see, as we've already noted on a few occasions, Revelation was written at a time in history, a place in history, when life for Christians was like being in the terminal. Very chaotic, very overwhelming. A time when Christians were facing fierce persecution from the Roman Empire. But what the book now does is that it opens the door of heaven for us and it allows us to go up into the control room. Today, we now get a view from above. And what we discover is that what can seem like utter chaos at ground level, from God's perspective, it's it's actually all going to plan. Now, I think we can appreciate this about our section this morning, which is chapters 4 all the way through to chapter 7. I think we can appreciate it when we understand that these chapters all revolve around a very important scroll. Let's firstly meet the owner of this scroll. Go back to chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. Just as last week's passage kicked off with a a loud voice like a trumpet calling for John's attention, that's how it starts off again this week. Notice, though, this time the voice comes from above John rather than behind John because John is being called up into heaven itself. The security guards are being waved away and he's going to be allowed into the control room. 
Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelan, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. Now remember our approach, this is an apocalyptic book, this is a picture book. It's a book about visions, we're meant to visualise it. So visualise it. We're actually looking at God himself, sort of. Because notice that there are no human features ascribed to him whatsoever. We're instead told about precious stones and rainbows. It's painting a picture of absolute preciousness and perfection and also power. Because so awesome is God that in verse 4 of the chapter, there's this massive sea in front of him. But there are no waves on it whatsoever. Everything is calm. Everything is submissive before this one. Verses 4 to 11, they describe how he's surrounded by all these important-looking people with crowns and strange-looking creatures, all of which look pretty impressive in their own right, and yet all of them are worshipping the one on the throne. It is a vision of total and absolute power and dominion, and he is the owner of the scroll. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What's the scroll? Well, again, picture it. A throne on which there is an awesome king holding a scroll. It is a picture of a mighty ruler holding a copy of his royal decrees. In other words, here are God's plans waiting to be enacted. And it's written on both sides, did you notice? So it's a pretty comprehensive plan of God, all waiting for someone to come along and put the plans into action. And it's at this point that the text swings from the owner of the scroll to the opener of the scroll, chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Now, this is a moment of high tension in the book. Uh, The hidden purposes of God, the plans of God are all there waiting to be executed. No one's worthy to execute them. John breaks down and weeps because here we have the great projects of God, the blessings of God, God's plans for the future. They're all unable to come to pass because no one's up to the task. Verse 5. And then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of Judah, the root of David, phrases straight out of the Old Testament. Lion of Judah, root of David, they describe the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament. They describe God's anointed king of the world. And here in, the, in this vision, is a, it's a great relief to see him because here now is someone who can open the scroll because, verse 5, he has triumphed. And notice it's past tensed, tense. He's, it's happened. He has triumphed. The great battle of God against his enemies, uh, the great victory of God, it's not a future battle. It's already been fought. It's already been won. How and when? Well, that's what the vision goes on to tell us as John turns to look at the Lion of Judah. But remarkably, he sees something unexpected. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb 
looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Instead of seeing a lion, which you would expect, because remember this is the lion of Judah, John instead sees, of all things, a sheep, and it's a really weird-looking sheep. It's a sheep that's a bizarre mixture of power and frailness. I mean, on the one hand, it's got seven horns, for example, horns symbolising power and strength, and yet at the same time, this all-powerful sheep is so severely wounded that it looks like it's going to die soon. How does that work? Well, it works because it's a symbolic representation of Jesus. And so as to make sure we don't miss that connection, it becomes really obvious from what the saints now cry out as they turn to worship the Lamb. Verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and nation, uh, language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Friends, this is huge. The Lion of Judah has triumphed by virtue of the fact that he is also a lamb who was slain. The Lion of Judah has triumphed because, verse 9, it was by being slain that he has purchased people from all nations. This is the language of a ransom being paid. It's the idea that people used to be owned by Satan, but now the lamb who was slain has given his life as their ransom so they could be set free. People who used to be owned by Satan are now owned by God. And as such, the lamb has made us into a kingdom to serve God. And verse 10, a kingdom that will reign on the earth. Man, to say that the lamb has triumphed, that is a massive understatement. People who used to be owned by Satan, now ransomed out of that, now purchased out of it, now set free to eventually reign on the earth. No wonder by the time you hit verse 11, heaven simply erupts into cheering. And there is singing and shouting of excitement and ecstatic praise. And it's with this vision of heaven cheering and singing and praising the Lamb, it's with this picture emblazoned in our minds that the Lamb now starts to open the scroll by peeling off the seals one at a time. And the vision shifts from cheering in heaven to chaos on earth. Chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. As the first seal is broken, a white horse rides out, a military king rides out intent on conquest, victory, annihilation. And then what follows, as we heard, were three more coloured horsemen all causing havoc in their wake. The second seal, verse 3, a fiery red horse with a rider who takes away peace. 
Seal three, a black horse with uh, scales weighing up rations because with conquest and with war often come hunger because the voice says in verse six, a quart of wheat for a day's wages. In other words, you're working all day for only enough wheat to make a single loaf of bread. A fourth seal, the pale rider, his name is death, Hades follows behind him. And in the vision, it's like a quarter of the earth is now being consumed by war and famine and plague and being ripped apart by animals. There's, there's danger everywhere you turn. And so the fifth seal, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, true, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, do you hear the voices? Do you see? Do you see the vision? How long is it going to be, God, till you fix this place up? How long must we wait till justice finally gets established? How long is it going to be till you actually avenge the blood of all those Christians who have been killed over all those years for nothing more than following you? See, after the celebrations of heaven in chapter 5, this chaos on earth in chapter 6, it's quite a shock. And perhaps we need to sort of gather our thoughts and think about what is actually going on with these horsemen. Because it's often suggested that these horsemen represent future periods of great distress that have yet to come in history. It's often suggested that these represent future periods of terrible misery and suffering that are going to come just before Jesus' return. And people often call it the Great Tribulation. Picking up a phrase in Revelation 7 verse 14, which is actually the only time it's ever used in the entire book of Revelation. I am not so sure about any of that stuff. I would like to suggest that these horsemen are not predictions of the future whatsoever. They are descriptions of what life was already like for the first century Christians to whom Revelation was originally written. So remember, this is a letter written to actual churches in the first century. And so just intuitively thinking, I'm not so sure it's much help to be telling them about a time of future suffering. They've got more than enough suffering in their own right. And within the text itself, there are a number of indications that this is not a future prediction. This is a present description of what life was like. A major indication of this is the simple fact that there are seven seals that are peeled off the scroll here. Not six, not eight, seven. And that is because if we were to take a bird's eye view of the entire book of Revelation, what we would notice is that the 22 chapters of Revelation, they are actually able to be teased out into a whole series of sevens. And so last week it was all about the personalised notes being written to the seven churches of the province of Asia. This week we've got the seven seals. Next week we're going to hear seven trumpets being blown. After that there's going to be seven signs in heaven. After that there's going to be seven plagues. And then eventually we will reach the final climactic section, which is a comparison between two cities. But all through the middle of the book, you get this repetition of cycles of seven over and over and over again and it builds the impression into the book that what we are actually seeing is the same thing 
being repeated over and over and over again, just from different angles. It's a bit like watching a footy game on the telly. If you've ever watched uh, an NRL game on the TV and someone scores a try, what often happens is that the decision as to whether or not it really is a try, it gets deferred to the video ref. And the video ref watches replays of the try over and over again from all these different angles to try and figure out what really happened. The commentators even refer to it as going upstairs for a decision. That is how the book of Revelation works. Over and over and over again, the same basic thing being replayed from all these different angles so that we can see what's really going on. And so last week we were introduced to the seven churches and we heard about their challenges and we heard about their circumstances and we heard all about their persecution and we heard about their poverty and we heard about the, the pressure that they were under to not stay loyal to Jesus. And now this week we are seeing the same thing again only from the perspective of heaven. We really have gone upstairs for a decision. And the, and the decision is that despite all the chaos on the earth, there is actually cheering going on in heaven because Jesus is in control. He is worthy to take the scroll and open its seal. Heck, the fact that there's even a scroll in the first place shows that despite the chaos, there's, there's still a plan being worked out. And so even though lots of people get all worked up about these four horsemen, we've got to keep remembering that Revelation is primarily about Jesus. And so the actual point of this vision is, is not so much what the horsemen do, be they past, present or future. The main point of the vision is that they can only do what Jesus is allowing them to do. It's only when Jesus opens the seal that they're allowed out. And descriptions like the one of the second horseman in verse 4, its rider was given power to take peace from the earth. To him was given a large sword. These horsemen, for all their malice, they can only do what they're given permission to do. And where the vision is heading in all of this is that there's going to come a time when that permission is withdrawn. And so the sixth seal comes off in chapter 6, verse 12. And there's a huge earthquake and the sun turns dark and the moon turns red and the stars fall from the sky and mountains are ripped from their place and you get a picture of what the martyrs have been waiting for. Finally, the kings of the earth have met their match and they will be put in their place. It gets better because you keep reading into chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. God's servants are marked out and protected with a seal. And there's a huge crowd of faithful Israelites and they're all safe and secure. They're all numbered and listed out on the page for you. Not because that's the exact number that there will be, but it's simply to symbolise that this is all going to plan. This is a perfect plan, a symmetrical plan. And then the rest of us are there as well at verse 9. A great multitude, too many to count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing in front of the throne, standing in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes, waving palm trees, singing the praises of the God who saves, singing the praises of the Lamb, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength to our God forever and ever. And it's as if the vision has now gone full circle and we're back up in heaven again. And everyone is praising the one on the throne and the Lamb. 
and the chaos is now behind us and there's only celebration in front of us. And so finally the seventh seal is peeled off in chapter 8 verse 1 there is simply silence. Rest. Peace. A bit like the seventh day of creation. Friends, it's a big vision, this one. It's stretching all the way from chapter 4 to 7. There's a lot to visualise, but if you step back and take in the sweep of it, it's not hard to see what's going on here. It's not hard to see what Revelation is revealing to us about Jesus today. John has been allowed into heaven so as to see that the Lion of Judah is the Lamb who was slain. John has been allowed into heaven so as to see that God has triumphed. Jesus, John has been allowed into heaven so as to see that Jesus is victorious and his people, come time, will share in that victory. And from that heavenly perspective, the seven seals on the scroll are now peeled off so as to help John see the situation of the seven churches in a whole new light. Yes, they are struggling under conflict. Yes, they are struggling under bloodshed and persecution of the Roman Empire. Yes, they are calling out for the time of the horsemen to be over. But as chaotic as it may seem, the lamb is in control. And there will come a day when everyone will see that. Let me tell you about Felicity. Not our daughter Felicity, another Felicity. Another real Felicity, but one who lived in the year 108 AD. You can read about her in the Acts of the Martyrs, which is a collection of accounts that the early church pulled together. Felicity is well known in social circles of Rome. She's well off. She's come from a respectable family. She's also a Christian, along with her seven sons. When a new law is brought in saying that every citizen of Rome must disown Jesus before a magistrate so as to sift out the Christians, they start with Felicity's sons. While she watches, her eldest son refuses to take the oath and so he is whipped and pressed death under weights. Her next two sons refuse to take the oath disowning Jesus and they are clubbed to death. Her fourth son refuses to take the oath. He is thrown off a cliff. Her last three sons refuse to take the oath disowning Jesus and are beheaded. And then finally, having been made to watch all her children perish, Felicity is beheaded with the same sword as her three youngest sons. Now, friends, Revelation was a book written for Felicity and those like her. People wondering whether it's on earth worth the trouble to be a Christian. And this morning it is saying that when you peel back the curtain of heaven, when you look into the control room to see what is actually going on, despite the chaos down here, despite the chaos that happened in Rome during that terrible period of history, despite the chaos that you notice on the news every time you turn the telly on, the lamb has triumphed. 
And a day is coming when we will see it and we will experience to the full. And so I don't know how much effort you're putting into being a Christian. I don't know. But what I do know is this. No matter how much effort you are putting in, no matter how much it might be taking it out of you to stay loyal to Jesus, Revelation is telling us that it is worth it. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's us, purchased by the Lamb. And you have made them into a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. I'll pray. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning that your son, the Lion of Judah, is indeed the lamb that was also slain for us. Thank you that with your blood you have purchased us, made us into a kingdom, made us into priests to serve our Father and our God. Father, thank you for the reminder that the Lion of Judah is indeed in control, even amongst apparent chaos. Thank you for the reminder that there will come a day when we will surround the throne, we will surround the Lamb, and that we will celebrate. Thank you that you have reminded us that there will come a day when we will reign on the earth. That's staggering, and we don't quite understand fully what that means. But thank you for the reminder that every effort that we make to stay loyal to Jesus is worth it. And we pray for those precious brothers and sisters who even this day, at this moment in history, suffer enormous persecution just to be meeting together like we are now. Please help them endure to the end. Help us to endure too. Amen.